0: neighbor you are listening to the new garden church podcast we're glad you're here we meet at 10 a.m. at dupont tyler middle school in hermitage tennessee you can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at newgarden.church online we would love to hear from you we hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon week 53 in our series long story short we are taking the whole year to read through the bible what really 2022 not 2020 oh this is embarrassing uh i guess i got so used to talking about long story short but i'm being told it's a new year happy new year it's 2022 I would say this year is going to be different, but we're all sitting at home this morning gathering together online. Seems more like last year in that way than it does a new year, but let's control what we can, and we can control what we talk about. Now, as you know, last year we spent the whole year traveling through the entire Bible. At times it seems like we were stuck in some of those longer Old Testament books and other weeks, We didn't even get to talk about some of the shorter books, but the feedback I received from those who were able to take part in the journey is that now things seem to make a little bit more sense when you read through the whole Bible. What was confusing now has some clarity. Now that everything has been figured out, not yet, but that's the point of reading it again and again and again. You notice new things or you see things in new ways, but hopefully you continue to always see how the story points to Jesus. So, In 2022, we're going to do another journey through the Bible. Our focus last year was charting a path and staying on course in order to get to the end on time. This year we're going to slow down. Instead of driving across the country to get to the Grand Canyon before spring break is over, we're jumping in the RV with our grandparents who just happened to buy the exhaustive guide to sightseeing across America. It's a slower trip with more stops, but You have time to stop and smell the flowers. Take your time. See things other people might miss. And they've decided to customize their RV with personalized paint. It's green. And on the side of it, it says, life is a garden. And I bet you can guess what their personalized license plate says. Dig it but well, they knew how to make a license plate in 1937. They should bring this look back. That's awesome. Now, while I don't know what it would take to get us all custom license plates for 2022, that say, dig it. Maybe we can get some t-shirts. This is our goal for this year, to dig it. Can you dig it? Uh, don't worry, that's gonna be cool to say someday. And what are we digging? Well, our theme this year is life is a garden. The Bible is full of illusions, metaphors, and language that use this idea to communicate the truth of God. There are gardens or connections to gardens all over the Bible. Listen to a few of these. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Luke 10 and Jesus was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Matthew 13, But the one sown with seed on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times as much. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a person took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is fully grown, It is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. 1 Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth." Matthew 3, Jesus said, "...produce fruit consistent with repentance." Matthew 7, "...beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit." Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Fruit, produce, reap, harvest, seasons, growth, seed. All of this is what I would call garden language. The story of the Bible begins in a garden. It ends in a recreation of that garden. Jesus submits his life to the will of the Father in a garden. His body is laid in a garden tomb. When he's resurrected, Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him thinking he's a gardener. Gardens are a thread woven through the tapestry of Scripture. And this year, our focus is going to dig into Scripture and see what new life sprouts in our lives in our church, in our community, and out into our world. So, are you ready to get to work? Yes. But every gardener needs tools to dig, to till, to plant, to reap. Our main tool this year will be our Bible. But we're going to provide some supplementary tools on our website, so you can go to newgarden.church/2022 to watch lessons, to download any handouts. For instance, in person this morning, you would have received this handout. Uh, You'll get one next Sunday if you're coming in person. But if you want to go to the website and download it right now or sometime this week, hopefully it will help you see Scripture in a new way. It's simply just Genesis chapter 1 kind of broken up. Um, The website is also going to be where we'll be posting our lesson videos when they become available. They'll also be on our YouTube channel. So if you want to follow us on YouTube, you can do that. So there's our tools. There's our theme. Let's get into the work. Now, last year, our goal was to read from Genesis to Revelation and see that the Bible is one story that leads to Jesus. And when you see Scripture through this lens, you see that Genesis 1 through 3, and really Genesis 1 through 11, prepares us for the rest of the story. The themes presented in these opening pages repeat throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. So to prepare the ground, we have to start at the beginning of the story. Page 1, first sentence, which says... Berashit bara Elohim et hashamayim vaet ha'aretz. Now, my plan was, if we met in person in the auditorium, I was going to have someone volunteer to read the first verse of the Bible, have them stand up, and then show them this. Hear the collective laughter—not out of embarrassment, but a unified feeling of confusion and being overwhelmed. Like, because most of us, including me, we're not fluent in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew but I like to show this as a reminder. This is a lens through which we can see the Bible. It's a reminder that the Bible is an ancient text. It's written in a different language and in a different cultural context. Any act of communication, verbal, nonverbal, written or visual carries meaning based on its particular language and its historical and cultural context. An ancient text can address things that are valuable to us as a modern audience, but we should never read an ancient text as if it were written for a modern audience. Reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience, and because of this, we have to step into a different cultural worldview to understand it. In his book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament, John Walton says, Effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas, a common ground of understanding. For the speaker, this often requires accommodation to the audience by using words and ideas they will understand. For the audience, if they are not native to the language and cultural matrix of the speaker, this means reaching common ground may require seeking out additional information or explanation. In other words, the audience has to adapt to a new and unfamiliar culture. Imagine your family hosted a foreign exchange student who is not familiar with American culture or sports. They bring home an assignment from school that they received an A on and you respond, you really hit it out of the park. Now in your home and language and culture, baseball is an American pastime. It's a familiar sports reference referring to a home run that you use to mean Good job. But imagine what is happening in the mind of the foreign exchange student. They go back to their room, they open up their dictionary app and they start defining these words. You, I understand you, really means actually, hit, to strike or collide with, it and out seem easy, the park, an area of land for the enjoyment of the public, or you can use it as a verb, which means to leave something in a certain place for a period of time. So the student interprets what you said as, You actually struck an assignment out of a land area or out of a place you left it for a certain period of time. Do you see the problem in translation here? Now the student could dive further, grab their phone, Google the phrase, and then they could read on the history of baseball, how the rules of scoring changed over the years due to the locations changing, how regulations came into place, how stadiums were built, and who first coined the phrase, you really hit it out of the park. Now the student not only knows what the words mean, but also understands what they mean in the context of the culture they're hearing them in. This is us when we read the Bible. We are entering a different time, place, language, culture, surrounding cultures, worldviews. And the men and women who spend years translating Hebrew words and phrases from Hebrew into English do their best to find equivalent words and phrases. But even then, things can get lost or buried in translation, and it takes some digging to bring those things to light. Language and cultural values change over time, so we need to remember that the original cultural context of the Hebrew Bible authors determines the meaning of the words and the genres they use. The Bible is designed to be studied, not merely read. That's why for thousands of years, Jewish children have grown up studying and reciting it is meditation literature. Now, the Bible is not the only creation story or cosmology that the ancient Israelites knew of. Ancient cosmologies are narratives about the origins and the nature of the universe. Genesis 1 and 2 form an ancient Hebrew cosmology. Now, ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, those of the people groups surrounding the ancient Israelites and the Israelites' own creation story do not intend to describe physical and material processes by which the universe came into being. Instead, their primary purpose is to address basic worldview issues. Who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? Who are the gods? The Bible's creation narratives are not in dialogue with modern scientific ideas about world origins, but they are in dialogue with ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, and Canaanite cosmologies. In his book, Seven Pillars of Creation, William Brown says, "...the framers of creation in the Bible inherited a treasure trove of venerable traditions from their cultural neighbors. Instead of creating their accounts ex nihilo, out of nothing, the composers of scriptures developed their traditions in dialogue with some of the great religious traditions of the surrounding cultures, particularly those originating from Mesopotamia and Egypt, as well as those of their more immediate Canaanite neighbors. The biblical authors carried along by God's Spirit wrote the story of the Bible using commonly understood language for their their time and their culture. Understanding that Genesis 1 and 2 is an ancient cosmology described by ancient words is crucial to understanding the narrative itself. The Bible's creation account shares far more in common with Egyptian, Babylonian, and Canaanite cosmologies than with our modern approaches to understanding our origins now the creation story that we find in genesis 1 and 2 is in dialogue with the creation accounts of babylon egypt and samaria it's not as simple as the biblical authors borrowing from these traditions rather they comment on and then transform them in a way that sets yahweh their god apart from these other gods and the creation stories of babylon Egypt, and Samaria, the world is often formed out of a violent battle between the gods or a god rising up from the waters to become the first being. All ancient Near Eastern creation accounts focus on this pre-creation state depicted as chaotic waters in which a god or gods create order and maintain order. In the Babylonian and Egyptian cosmologies, the chaos waters and the darkness are a threat that the gods must violently overcome. But in Genesis 1, God is not threatened by anything. He subdues and separates the waters. He creates land. He overcomes darkness with light just by speaking. So let's finally get into it and let's read the first two verses of Genesis to set the stage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and desolate emptiness and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the surface of the waters now there is a lot going on here there are extra notes that we will talk about in weeks to come but for right now what i want to focus on is verse 2 and the parallel structure that it forms. Okay, These verses assume that the pre-creation state of the cosmos was a wild, chaotic, dark water. Now while our modern understanding of creation is to bring something from nothing, an ancient understanding of creation is to bring order from chaos. So what was the pre-creation state of things? Did the biblical authors think of this chaotic pre-creation state as negative or neutral? Well, the scriptures in verse 2 give us a clue. The wild and waste is also called darkness, which is always a negative image in the Hebrew Bible. Night is a dangerous time when destructive things happen, but even the darkness is under Yahweh's control. The pre-creation state is also depicted negatively as the deep It's translated as abysmal waters. This is the Hebrew word, tahom. The word tahom occurs 36 times in biblical Hebrew, and it's associated with dangerous flood waters that threaten to overtake the land. For instance, the next occurrence of tahom after creation is during the flood in Genesis 7, when God allowed the chaotic waters to overwhelm the order of his creation once more. Now, verse 2 has a parallel structure in which the key terms are matched in order to contrast them. Ocean waters appear in both lines with two very different connotations depending on what or who is above them. In the first line, darkness is present. So the waters are threatening and destructive. This is the to-home. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. To-home. But in the next line, God's spirit is present. So the waters are controlled and can be life-giving and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The deep, abysmal waters, the tahom, represents the impossibility of human life and flourishing. But the presence of God's Spirit transforms chaos into water, which will be a source of life for humanity. Verse 2 paints us a picture that shows God's presence is the only difference in this equation, but His presence makes all the difference. What follows is the story of how God will take this chaos and bring order. He takes what is unordered and uninhabited, and He shapes and He fills in order to create a place where humanity can thrive, which we'll look at in the coming weeks. But it all begins with His Spirit entering into our world. And this won't be the last time we see God's presence through His Spirit making a difference in the life of humans. The Spirit is there drying up the waters after the flood. The Spirit is leading the people of Israel out of Egyptian Bondage and through the wilderness. It's the Spirit manifesting on Mount Sinai like a consuming fire. It's God's Spirit living among His people in the tabernacle and in the temple. It's the Spirit descending upon Jesus as He begins His ministry. It's the Spirit that empowers the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And Paul says it's the Spirit that seals us for redemption through salvation. It's the Spirit that produces fruit in our lives. When our lives look like chaotic waters of the deep, when it seems like to home is breaking into our lives and into our world, let us remember that we are not alone and chaos is not in control. Chaos submits to the Creator. And that God's presence may be the only difference in the equation, but His presence makes all the difference. Now each week we go to a table where we remember this and we proclaim this. We submit our lives to the presence of God. We declare him as creator and redeemer, and we remember how the creator became like us to suffer for us, to redeem us to eternal life. So today, as we go to the table, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what 2021 did to you. I don't know what 2022 has in store for you, but I know this, that anybody can invite God's presence into their life and God's presence can make all the difference. Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us and we'll be back with another episode again next week.